This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Off Track, the ABC's nature program. And this week is International Moth Appreciation Week. We have moths that drink the tears of animals whilst they sleep. So this caterpillar can kind of force air through their spiracles. Feasting on dung cause a high-pitched squeaking sound that drink blood and things like that. You're like, don't eat me! <laughs> I'm Dr Ann Jones and I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's not like I need much encouragement to nerd out about lesser-loved parts of Australian nature. So here we go, in honour of moths everywhere an extra nature nerd session where we attempt to answer your mothiest questions. And not me, rather, I've got some experts in to help. So I'm George Binns. I'm in my third year of my PhD at Macquarie University and I kind of fell into moths. I did my Master of Research in 2018 and when I went to go and meet my supervisor and asked her if I could do some research with her, she kind of handed me three projects and said, pick one. One of them was about moths, the variation in warning signals, which is what I'm studying now, and the other two are about spiders. And um, one of the projects in particular about spiders was about sperm transfer, and I was really excited about that. And I was like, wow, I'd really like the idea of doing something with like um, sexual behaviours and things like that. And then I realised I wasn't sure how I was going to tell my dad about that. So I picked moths. <laughs> So what I am particularly interested in is I study this genus called Amata. They're little tiger moths and they have these really bright, conspicuous colours that tell predators that they are defended chemically and is so clever. Yeah, hi, I'm Ying Law and I'm a PhD student at the Australian National University and also based at the Australian National Insect Collection at CSIRO. I'm studying a group of micro moths so they're extremely tiny moths and these moths are leaf miners so what that means is that their larvae live inside a leaf and they basically tunnel through the leaf eating the tissue of the leaf so rather than maybe like how we traditionally think of caterpillars where they're on the outside of the leaf munching away they live inside the layers of the leaf and they just create these cool little squiggles that you can actually see with your naked eye. So as adults, their wingspan is actually less than one centimetre. So when you think of wingtip to wingtip, that is less than one centimetre. So they're really small moths. So as larvae, they're even smaller. So you do need uh, to use a microscope, but sometimes with the really big larvae, you can actually hold the leaf up up to the light and you can see them inside the leaf just moving around. Uh, I'm going to be doing that out in the bush now when I see those little... (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It's really cool. It's really cool. That's so cool. All right. Okay. So we've got a heap of questions that have come in from the audience, plus some questions that I know have been lurking in my inbox for ages about moths. First one, how many species of moths do we have in Australia and or do we think that we have in Australia? Yeah, so um, at last count, we have about 14,000 species of moths that are described in Australia, and we think that's only about half of what's actually out there. But really, when you think about it on a global scale, we've got around 160,000 species worldwide that have been described, but we think there's maybe possibly about 500,000 species. 
Wow. So I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing then that within this, what we, you know, broadly call moths, there must be heaps of diversity in terms of size, what they look like and their role in the environment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ying is studying micro-moths that are minuscule, right? And then you've got these other ones, for example, rain moths in Australia that are a wingspan of up to 16 centimetres. Like they're palm size, they're huge. So the diversity is massive, right? Yeah, definitely. And even within the group that I'm studying, as I said, they live in leaves, but I've read that there are some that can live inside aquatic leaves. So they're not even doing yeah. the same thing inside the group. Oh, my gosh. An aquatic <laughs> Lepidoptera. What is the difference? This one's been asked by Grace. What is the difference between a moth and a butterfly? We're actually taught in school the differences are, you know, moths are brown and butterflies are colourful and butterflies are out during the day and moths are at night. But as usual, when it comes to things in biology, there's no rules. (laughs) But there are a couple of things that definitely define moths from butterflies. It starts off with the larvae. So the caterpillars, butterflies have four prolegs. And moths will have less than that. Sometimes they have three, sometimes they have two sets, but butterflies always have four. So you can immediately tell the difference then by looking at the caterpillars. So there's a difference taxonomically between what we call a proleg and a true leg. Um, On the larvae, they have jointed legs. So that's something that insects all have. So those are the legs at the front. And then they have these fleshy protrusions that help them grip or do other things that are the prolegs. At the back, yeah. So, for example, looper caterpillars only have two pairs at the back. So that's why they form those little loops when they're walking around. They kind of inch along rather than crawling along. Okay, already learning things I never knew. What else? You said that there are a couple of things that that define them. Yeah, there's also the antennae. In butterflies, butterflies tend to have this kind of clubbed antennae. It's kind of like bulked up at the top, whereas moths are either quite straight, serrated, or really like we call it filiform. So they look like feathers. And the males always have much more filiform or feathery antennas or serrated antennas than the females do. Look, I was wondering, well, we got a question about this from a listener wondering if moths or butterflies are faster or more efficient in their flying. It definitely depends on the species. Bit hard to answer that one. Yeah, well, there's this classic example of bats versus moths and this age-old kind of arms race example that we use in biology to understand predator-prey interactions and bats, you know, have evolved this ability to be able to use their ultrasonic clicking to be able to detect where predators are in the environment and moths have evolved the ability to hear those clicks and jam those signals and move out of the way before the bat reaches them, things like that. So some moths, particularly the Sphingidae group, they're called hawk moths, and they are they look like little, little jet fighter planes actually. And they're very, very fast flyers. They're very good at manoeuvring. They ho- Some of them hover like uh, hummingbirds do. And then you've got butterflies, of course, that are really good at getting really high and going like above canopies and zooming across. And some of the species are just impossible to catch. So it definitely depends on the species. And I think it also can tell a lot by an animal and the way that it behaves in the environment by looking at it physically and its behaviour. 
if there is a moth that is definitely targeted by fast predators in most species, you're more likely to find that they're probably evolved the ability to be quite quick themselves. So I guess it just really depends on the species. Yeah, and there's also in terms of ability of how far they fly, that also varies. So a very famous Australian example is the bogong moth. They fly thousands of kilometres to migrate. And that's also similar for, I guess, in North America with the monarch butterflies. They perform like very famous migrations just trying to fly from one favourable area to another. But there are also moths that don't fly very far at all. So those very small ones, they they might not even go more than, you know, 100 metres. We, we're still trying to understand how far they might be found from their hatching area. There's a lot of inspiration to be taken from moths, not just moral inspiration like I do, but um, potentially engineering as well. And Kylie was interested in finding out if there are any sort of engineering feats that humans do that are inspired by moths. Apparently, they're doing a lot of kind of engineering things with um, moth eyes and the way that moths actually see things in different light levels. So they're inspiring designs of different types of really hypersensitive cameras and anti-reflection technology as well, um, which I found very fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, that's insane because, like, I didn't necessarily think that moths were known for their eyesight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the thing because we have day-flying moths and night-flying moths, there's there's definitely going to be some good vision in there somewhere. Yeah, with that many species. And also it begs the question about communication. And we got a question from Robin, who is five years old, who asked, how do moths communicate? So with moth communication, there's a lot of variation, but I think the most common or type of communication would be using pheromones. So those are chemical signals that are sent out from one moth to kind of all moths in the vicinity. So as George was saying earlier, like the antennae of a male and female moth within the same species might actually vary. So one, so the female moth might have a more simple type of antennae, but the male moth will have much larger feathery antennae. So that's because the male moth will want to try and increase the amount of surface area he has to be able to sense those pheromones from the female moth. Right. So he's essentially got like a big net to catch pheromones coming off the top of his head. Yeah, yeah. And so the bigger, the better. So when you see those really showy large antennae, that's often the males just trying to find a female. (laughs) Yeah. And the pheromones can waft for great distances as well. I think there was a study recently that they were saying there's a couple of kilometres they could detect the pheromones from. And a way of explaining the pheromones is sort of like smells, right? Yeah. So I had a moth researcher describe it as a perfume. Because I'm just thinking, uh, Robin, who asked the questions five years old, so they sort of send out smells to each other, Robin, (laughs) (laughs) to to say when they're ready to get married and whatnot. Um, Yes. (laughs) Now, I think that both of you have mentioned that there's moths that actually come out in the day and moths that come out in the night, like as opposed to what we might initially believe that we only see them at night but why is it that moths are attracted to lights and flames? Generally it is thought that moths use celestial sources of light to navigate so for instance they might be using the moon or the stars but this doesn't apply to all groups so 
when they see a large source of light, they might be thinking, oh, this beautiful light is the moon. They're using it to try and navigate, but because our lights are kind of circular in the globe, the, the emitted light just kind of goes in a circle around it. And that's why they're often, not only are they attracted to it, but then they're kind of trapped there because they can't navigate away from it because they're just thinking it's the moon and they're getting a bit confused. A question from Julie. What do scales do on moths? Well, scales are modified hairs or setae, essentially. So they probably have a couple of different uses besides being completely responsible for the moth's pattern and colours. I assume that they also have some sort of sensitivity to be able to detect when there's anything coming near them. I mean, I assume that that's how they kind of duck and avoid being eaten by birds and things like that because they can kind of feel the air pressure coming towards them. And there's this idea of them using the scales also to funnel pheromones in certain directions as well. That sounds very complex. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I would say that the scales on a moth's wing just really help them fly, so it makes them more aerodynamic. Absolutely. We can see the bright colours on the moth, so that could become a form of defence against predators or trying to attract a mate. But, yeah, there are some fun stories about moth scales. For instance, there's a type of moth that spends its larval stage, so its caterpillar stage, living inside the nest of weaver ants. Have you heard of this, George? I think so. (laughs) So it's like a type of caterpillar and it is a parasite. It just hangs out inside the nest of these green tree ants. It just eats the larvae of the ants and it just lives its best life. And then it pupates inside the nest of these ants. And so when it finally emerges as an adult, it's covered in all these long scales. So then as it tries to break out of this nest and the ants are like, who are you? What are you doing in here? They're, they'll try and attack the moth, but these scales will kind of just fall right <laughs> off. So it forms a defense for the moth. So as it tries to make it w- its way out of the nest, you know, you can imagine all these ants just trying to get a grip on this moth, but it's not able to, and the moth is able to make a break for it at the end. See, they're so much more clever than we give them credit <laughs> for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so there's many different uses to scales Yeah, moth swing. Also a bit more colourful perhaps than we give them credit for, and I know there were some questions about this because most of the moths, when you say moth, we think brown, little brown, maybe fluffy. But is that the case? Absolutely not. We have some of the brightest uh, moths in the world in this country. Yeah, and even even um, with my own group of moths so a lot of people think of you know there's a lot of small browns or little brown moths um my group of moths that I study is traditionally kind of thought of like one of those but today I just discovered that there's one that's pink and yellow so that's the best combination of colors (laughs) and um who would have known yeah just thinking that um you could find even this combination of pink and yellow on a natural naturally occurring species Yeah. What I think is really interesting about moths in particular is that the closer you look, the more beautiful they are as well. So even if you get the little grey and brown little moths, when you look at them really up close, there's a lot of of iridescence and shimmering that that occurs in them as well. And I think that you just got to get nice and close to them to understand how beautiful they are. But we do have some really like electrically coloured ones. Um, There was, I can't remember what species it was, but there was this one that I saw out in Western Sydney and it was quite large. It was probably a wingspan of about between eight and 10 centimetres. It was pretty big. 
And um, it was very, this gorgeous, lovely kind of understated gray. And as I got close to it to take a photo, it lifted its four wings and its hind wings were like this sunset pinky coral orange. Oh, that's underneath. amazing. And it's essentially, <laughs> a, yeah, it's essentially this warning signal, like don't get too close to me. But um, a very understated warning signal, obviously. It's not, it's not in view the whole time. It was such a surprise to have this gorgeously contrasted color, like a sunset being flashed at me I was like oh well now I'm getting closer to you that didn't work at all (laughs) we're terrible predators with the colors you said that they were giving out signals of like stay away predator do they give out other signals do they use colors to attract mates yeah definitely in fact I think that my my little tiger moths have this blue iridescent flash on the black on the melanin part of their wings and I have no evidence yet to support this, but I think that it is probably a sexual signal um, because I find it it's a lot brighter on the underside of the moth than it is on the top. And when you think about a female sitting there on a leaf wafting her pheromones around and a male kind of hovering around like, oh, is this the female? Hello, can you see me? I, like I, to me that's probably what it is, but I could be completely wrong. I haven't done any testing on it yet. Um, but they do think that the iridescence generally is a bit of a sexual signal but the bright colors are generally a warning a warning color yeah from the mountain recluse on twitter got a question my dog keeps on eating the large moths in tasmania that come into my backyard is it okay for my dog to eat moths and i think like the broad no <laughs> well, it's not for the moths is it <laughs> no for the moth's sake no but also i mean I don't want to gross anyone out here, but moths and lepidoptera in general are pretty disgusting. What about the bogle moth? <laughs> Not by, I mean, I'm sure they're delicious to eat. Some of them are very delicious to eat. But when you think about what a lot of moths actually eat themselves, we have moths that drink the tears of animals whilst they sleep. We have moths that specialize in feasting on dung and urine. And there's some in other countries that drink blood and things like that. Um, toxic. Do you know if there are any ones that have toxicity for dogs or for humans even? Yeah, yeah. So this, the moths that I'm studying actually have these things called pyrolyzidine alkaloids and some of them are carcinogenic. So we've just started doing some of this in the lab, some uh, chemical ecology work, and you have to buy these chemical standards and they come in these tiny little powders Um, And the label warnings on them are terrifying. Um, Do not inhale, fatal if swallowed, because, yeah, some of them are carcinogenic. A lot of insects are chemically defended, Um, and especially in Australia we have a lot of really cool plants that um, are very chemically defended that moths, larvae um, will eat to be able to sequester those plant chemicals and use them as a secondary defense mechanism so they go through metamorphosis as a larvae going through pupae into an adult and they retain these chemicals and they're able to use them as adults to defend against predators which is kind of cool but um one of the reasons i haven't licked one of my moths is that for that very reason and they might not like it 
Ms. Felonius on Twitter wanted to know how to create moth habitat around her place. Are there any tips or tricks to having a moth-friendly garden? Yeah, the tips and tricks for creating moth habitat is just have more biodiversity in your garden. So you won't only attract more moths, but you'll attract other great insects, more pollinator species. I think if you have um, particularly native species, if you have a veggie garden, you should definitely have a pollinator garden as well, just to attract all those friendly, helpful insects and they can help pollinate your veggies as well. Absolutely. And have sacrificial plants that you don't mind if insects eat because there's a lot of moths that feed on nectar, but there's also fruit piercing moths, the Udicema, which will also will want to eat some of your fruit. It's probably important if you're going to grow food plants in your backyard, then I would suggest having a couple that you don't mind sharing with the wildlife. Of course, there's a lot of moths that don't eat as adults. So um, you won't attract everything, but you'll, you'll give most of the things in your area a good go if you, if you share. A question about moths in the household. Caitlin was wondering why it is when she leaves the sheets out to dry overnight, it doesn't bring them in in time, that in the morning there'll be moths that are like to hide in the little folds of the sheets and things like that. What's going on there? Why do they like her washing? I think it sounds like maybe those sheets are acting as a light trap because when you actually hang a light trap, you do use like a white sheet to reflect light. So And often these moths, once they're attracted to the light, they don't actually fly away. So, but, you know, so these guys, they might be attracted to your nice clean washing and the, um, maybe even the moonlight reflecting off it. And then it'll, yeah, (laughs) and they'll come and rest on the, um, on the light sheet and then. Yeah, and then she'll find them the next morning. That's like totally different than what I assumed, and this just proves. What was your? What did you assume though? Yeah, like, yeah, I'm very interested to know. Uh, this is why it's always interesting to actually ask questions and not just rely on your assumptions. I assumed that it may be a behaviour that was linked to them, where they might roost during the day. So if a moth likes to go into a fold oh. of bark during the day or something like that to blend in and spend its its sleeping time during the day before it becomes nighttime active, that the sheet might provide a similar habitat that the moth would go into to hide yeah Yeah, I'm sure it's a bit of both like I think that's how the light sheet works (laughs) the moth comes and finds a nice place to to rest yeah doesn't leave yeah yeah We've got one final question here from um, Jonathan who has the possibly the best question I've ever received (laughs) it says is it possible for me to have a pet moth trained to return to my hand like a falcon oh gosh I wish <laughs> you can definitely keep pet moths, but whether or not they'll come back after you yeah. release them is another thing. But um, yeah, I think it's quite common. I think uh, maybe nowadays not so much to kind of, you know, collect caterpillars from the wild and collect some of their host plants, so the food that they're um, eating, and then just observe them and watch them as they kind of go through their different stages of development so that's kind of what I've been doing with my leaf miners like I've been you know rearing them so you can have a pet but whether or not it'll come back or have any loyalty to you once it can fly is another thing 
but <laughs> another thing that would would harm your chances on that is probably the relatively short lifespan of the adult form of the moth right because yeah. I know that there'd be variation but they don't really last all that long do they no and the ones that don't eat as adults are even shorter lived than the ones that do eat so um you can you find some moth species that don't eat and they're probably only a you know a week you know they just need to get out there and have the sexy times and they don't drink or anything like that, so they would dehydrate very quickly. But what um, a week, though! I think that a, w- <laughs> <laughs> a week of me, ladies. <laughs> um, I I think you could attract moths, though, if you found out what the pheromones were like. You could definitely bring a moth back to you if you Ooh. had raised a male and and smelled like a female moth. You might be able to get them to come back to you in that way. Well, well, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Um, If you wear just the right perfume, (laughs) Jonathan, it might be you that the moth comes back to. Thank you to our moth nerd PhD students today, George from Macquarie Uni and Ying from the Australian National University. And I'm Anne Jones, a newly emerged moth enthusiast, And remember to find Off Track wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. And that way, when the Off Track minibus rocks up for the next episode, you can jump aboard, because that's when I'll take you somewhere else. Thanks, Anne. Bye. (laughs) Yeah, see you around. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.